Hello, and welcome to another installment of the Sea Realm Podcast. I am your host, KMO, and this is episode number 284, Stocks, Flows, and the Miko Effect, prepared for release onto the World Wide Web on Wednesday, November 16th, 2011. In this installment of the podcast, I'll be playing some material that I recorded at a conference from which I have just returned. It was the... Oh, it's got many names, but I'm going to call it the VAL Conference, V-A-L, Vision, Action, and Leadership. And there I spoke with Steve Keen. Steve is an economist of sorts, although he describes himself as an anti-economist. He's just released the second edition of a book called Debunking Economics. And he also has a blog called Debt Watch. And if you go to that blog and you click on About, you'll find the following. Steve writes... As an economist, I do something very unusual. I treat money seriously. Though this may be hard for those who have not done an economics degree to believe, economists have it schooled into them that money doesn't matter. That it is just a veil over barter. There to make it easier to swap commodities than it would be if you actually had to find somebody who had what you wanted and wanted to sell what you wanted to buy. The argument that persuades them goes something like this. What would happen if you simultaneously doubled all prices and all incomes? Nothing. In other words, if consumers are rational, now there's a much-abused word, but I digress, they shouldn't care about the absolute prices of goods, just their relative prices. So doubling all prices and doubling a consumer's income shouldn't cause her to do anything different. But of course, changing relative prices would alter behavior. Bollocks double all prices and my income, and I'd be much better off because my mortgage payments would take less of my income, even if interest rates were also doubled. That's because I'm in debt. I have a mortgage. And you can't simply double interest rates to reach the same outcome as doubling prices, because debt repayment dynamics make the whole thing non-linear. Include debt, seriously, in your analysis of consumption, and the veil-over-barter vision of money collapses. But this inconvenient truth is omitted from economics, not because economists are deliberately hiding it, but because they have deluded themselves about the nature of money. I take it into account, and as a result, I get a very different picture of how the economy operates than do conventional, that is, neoclassical economists. I use this blog to post monthly reports on debt levels in Australia and the USA. So that was Steve Keen writing about his blog on his blog. And now, here is my interview with Steve Keen. You're listening to the Sea Realm Podcast. C stands for consciousness. You are listening to the Sea Realm Podcast. I'm your host, KMO, and I'm joined by Steve Keen. And uh, I'm afraid I don't have your CV in front of me, but I'm sure it's Professor Steve Keen. It is, yeah. Alrighty. And you teach where? University of Western Sydney. And your area of expertise is obviously economics, but should I be any more specific than that? Well, I, when I'm introduced socially, I call myself an anti-economist, <laughs> um, a critic of the mainstream of economic theory, which is known as neoclassical economics. And my own specialties are both the history of economic thought and dynamic modelling, which economists normally do not do, and Hyman Minsky's financial instability hypothesis. So, and that's the, uh, the reason why I was one of the few people to warn of the crisis coming, because... What we're going through is fundamentally uh, captured by Minsky's theory about financial instability. You were just mentioning Homer Minsky, and you're developing a software package called Minsky. Mm-hmm. What will be the purpose of that? Well, the economists have practiced what I call comparative statics for a long, long time, which is where they think they can describe the economy at some point in time. 
then describe it at a future point in time and compare the two points and use that as a way of talking about the movement of the economy through time. And in doing that, they assume that the first point is a point of equilibrium and the second point is a point of equilibrium. So they model the economy as a series of uh, static equilibrium points separated by time but not connected through time. That is one of the many reasons why economists have completely misunderstood the economy and, and yet they have to think about it in a dynamic process where it's out of equilibrium, disequilibrium all the time, moving through time. They have to use that type of methodology to really get any handle at all on how the economy functions. There is... Uh, the same need exists in engineering. Even a bridge, for example, is a dynamic object because with the load of cars on it all the time, the winds, etc., etc., it's got to be responding to all those forces. Even that's a dynamic structure. So engineers have developed a whole range of very sophisticated software packages that let them model a physical structure before they actually build it. And packages that go by names like Simulink, VizSim, um, um, uh, quite a range of software packages. That they are designed for engineering problems. And when engineers have tried to use this software to show to economists saying, hey, you've got, got a dynamic problem, uh, much more complex than building a bridge, but the dynamics must be part of how you think about it, why don't you use our software? You get what um, a friend of mine calls the Mego effect. My eyes glaze over. <laughs> but they see this diagram and all these wires going here, there and everywhere and integration blocks and stuff like that. And they just don't comprehend it. I've seen this happen with a colleague of mine who is an engineer, interested in economics, tries to use this technology to talk to economists. They just go totally blank. Um, part of the problem is, uh, as well, that you, this software doesn't work well when you want to design models of financial flows, which is my specialty. And I finally worked out that I could actually use the age-old paradigm that accountants developed, the double-entry bookkeeping, to actually explain a large part of the financial dynamics of a capitalist economy. So what Minsky does is build that double-entry bookkeeping thing into the flowchart software that engineers have perfected using the double-entry bookkeeping to generate all the financial dynamics and the other stuff, to di the uh, flowchart stuff that it, it work about the production processes by which you turn raw commodities and labour into finished goods. So I'm, and it, I'm hoping that with that combination of paradigms, very intuitive, very easy to follow, uh, tabular layout that gives you the double-entry bookkeeping that shows you what the financial flows are between workers, firms, bankers and so on, uh, that that will work as a way of seducing economists and saying, hey, we should really learn this approach. And then finally moving over from the comparative static nonsense, which led them astray, to a form of dynamic modelling that actually works and is intuitive and I hope sexy to a newer generation of students who've all played simulation games and computer games and so on. So I'm, I'm trying to wean, as well as trying to re revolt against the conventional economic theory by saying it's intellectually flawed, I also have to provide an attractive alternative so my attempt at building this program is an attempt to build a seductive, attractive, alternative way to think realistically about capitalism because we can see what happens when you think unrealistically about it. Normally when I interview somebody, I have listened to their other interviews and my goal is to get them, one, to say something they haven't said elsewhere yeah. and two, to go deeper than they have in other media interviews. Yeah. And with you, it's just the opposite. 
I would, I would like you to invite you to repeat yourself as often as you think is necessary <laughs> and uh, to be as, as pedantic as you think is necessary, even maybe a bit more so. Um, I don't really feel that I have a good grasp on your, your overall message. I, yeah. I understand that you, uh, you describe yourself as an anti-economist, and more mm. specifically, it would be an anti-neoclassical economist, yep. and that you think that neoclassical economists have uh, subscribed to certain myths that lead them to engage in uh, not just quixotic policy decisions, but actively uh, maladaptive decisions. And if you would... Say something about that just in general terms and then give some specific examples of misguided policy decisions that arise from the myths of neoclassical economics. Well, probably the most important one is their attitude to money because, again, most people who aren't economists automatically think that economists must be experts on money because the economy is about money. Ironically, economists convinced themselves centuries, decades ago, that money is unimportant and they model the economy as if it's a system of barter where money is just a, like a, a, a making barter easier. So they have a barter model of the economy. And given that, when they're macroeconomic models, the models that model model how the whole economy uh, acts, they omit banks completely, and they normally also omit money completely, and they also omit private debt completely. And then on top of that, they also, when they do think about banks, they say, well, what a bank is is just an intermediary between people who are savers, who are patient, and people who are borrowers, who are impatient. And so a bank just lets uh, a patient person give money to an impatient person and get paid interest for it. And therefore they say, well, therefore, the level of private debt doesn't matter because all you've got is the... Uh, when, when, a, when a loan takes place, a saver's capacity to spend goes down, the borrower's capacity to spend goes up, one cancels the other out, and there's overall no macroeconomic impact. Therefore, they ignore the level of private debt. And if people think that's... If they've got their own worries about it being absurd, and surely they couldn't think this, look for Paul Krugman's most recent research paper with uh, Eggerston, I think, and you'll see it says precisely that expression. And Bernanke, in writing his essays on the Great Depression, argued that the reason nobody took, in, in neoclassical economics, took Irving Fisher seriously with what he called the debt deflation theory of Great Depressions was because, from their point of view, a debt deflation was no more than a transfer from one group debtors to another group creditors. actually says that. Now, the reason that's dangerous is that that is not how money is actually created. That is not what a loan actually encounters. So you don't have to have somebody saving money before a loan can be made. What actually happens with a loan is that you go to a bank and the bank listens to what you've um, proposes an idea, whether that's you know gambling on some asset price or inventing a device to beat the iPod. Uh, the bank says, "Yeah, interesting idea. We like it. Um, you need a hundred million dollars for it. Here's a hundred million dollars. By the way, you owe us a hundred million dollars." And they create this additional spending power out of nothing. Now, I'm, I'm using those words deliberately because that's a quote from Joseph Schumpeter in 1934 who I think was the only economist, more so than Keynes, who really understood the nature of credit back in those days. And that's exactly what he described at one stage. He says, you don't have to have savers losing spending power to give borrowers additional spending power because the banks create the spending power by a double-entry bookkeeping process where they say, here's a loan, 
of, a, of the money, and therefore you are in debt just for that much money. That gives you an expansion in spending power beyond what comes out of just selling goods and services. So, therefore, the change in debt finances investment and speculation. So, basically, the, the money we earn by selling goods and services finances our consumption. But the money that, uh, that, that entrepreneurs borrow from banks and that speculators borrow from banks adds additional demand that gets spent investing, which, of course, is a, is a useful activity in capitalism, but also speculating, which is a dangerous activity in capitalism. So those two processes mean that the level of debt adds to aggregate demand. So total demand in the economy is not just what we get from selling goods and services. It's that plus the change in debt. And therefore, if that change in debt gets to be particularly large, then what happens to the change in debt can actually dominate macroeconomic activity. And when you've got a boom going on like the subprime boom in America... Many, many people are going to the bank and borrowing large amounts of money to go and gamble on rising house prices. And the scale of that borrowing can be enormous. So to give you an idea of how big it was, in 2008, which is when you reach the peak uh, rate of change of debt, the American GDP was roughly $14 trillion. The increase in debt that year was about $4.5 trillion. So total spending in the economy was $18.5 trillion. And... That money was spent both on buying goods and services, but also on buying shares and houses. Okay? So I'm, I'm seeing aggregate demand as being monetary and spent on both goods and services and buying financial claims on assets. So $14.5 trillion, $14 trillion of goods and services demand becomes $18.5 trillion of total demand, giving a booming uh, stock market, a booming housing market, and people buying you know, SUVs and plasma TVs with the borrowed money as well. Then when the crunch hit, you went from the debt rising by $4.5 trillion to it being reduced by $2 trillion, roughly, in one year. So in 2010, the change in debt was actually negative. Debt fell from about, say, you know, I'm going rough here, but say 44 to $42 trillion. That meant you went from $18.5 trillion of spending in 2008 to about $12 trillion of spending in 2010, which is about a 30 to 40% turnaround in the economy. That's why you're in a crisis. Now, that was completely ignored by neoclassical economists. They think this crisis was an exogenous shock, as they call it, something that came from outside the economy and caused this disturbance. And the system should right itself now. And when I say to them, look, it's the change in debt that's driving it, oh, no, no, that can't matter. They won't even consider it. And I've had personal experience of trying to explain this to neoclassical economists professors, lords in England, you know, knighted for their services to academia, and they can't comprehend it. So that is a huge damage because, first of all, they ignored that growth in debt over the previous, well, in America, right, right back from 1945, but clearly since 80, 80, the 87 stock market bubble, they promoted the growth in debt. The theories actually argue that it was good to be in debt. That what they call the efficient markets hypothesis had an argument that the best way to fund a company was to be 100% debt financed. They legitimised all this behaviour. And without their, uh, their incursion into economic policy, we probably would have had a, a mini-crisis back in 1987. Instead, we're having a maxi-crisis now. So that is damage they have done to society. We would have been far better off if we hadn't had economists at all than people who believe that stuff. 
and and that's why there are many many manifestations of the damage they've done to society. But that is, I think, fundamentally the most important one. Well, you're not only a, a critic of economists, but you're also a critic of sort of alternative economists. Uh, you mentioned that money or additional spending power is created when a bank makes that double bookkeeping entry. Yeah. You know, you owe us a hundred dollars, and here you have a or a million dollars, and here yeah. you have a million dollars, but. Really, you don't owe us a million dollars. You owe us a million dollars plus interest. And yeah. uh, a popular argument goes that the bank creates the additional money for the principal, but they don't create the additional money for the interest. So mm-hmm. either somebody else has to default on their loan so mm-hmm. that the person who successfully pays back the loan can outcompete them in the marketplace, yeah. or we have to continually expand the money supply by making new loans, which mm-hmm. requires even greater levels of debt. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the argument is that without continuous expansion, all debts cannot be paid back. Mm. And you're critical of that argument. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what's, what is your criticism there? Well, again, it's much the same as why the reason I criticize neoclassical economists, because since neoclassical economists work in what they call comparative statics, they don't think about flows and stocks in any careful way. But if you're an engineer, when you design a, a vehicle, you are thinking very carefully about stocks and flows. So, for example, you would design a petrol tank that means that the car can travel 500 miles before it needs to be refueled. And that's a relationship between the stock of petrol in the tank and the amount of petrol used per mile by the car at normal travelling speeds. So the stock and the flow comparison of the two determines how big a petrol tank you build for a particular car. So you are thinking of these stocks and flows relationships and you're aware that there's a stock which is dominated by gallons, and then there's another flow, which is gallons per unit of time, or gallons per kilometre. And you're aware of those differences between the two. Now, just as neoclassical economists don't think properly about stocks and flows, neither do the critics. So the critics think there's a stock called dollars of loans, and they think because there's dollars of loans and they're also charging interest, you have $105 and you've got to pay back... $100 $100 lent, let's work in hundreds rather than millions, lend $100, charge 5% interest, you were expecting $105 back. What they're doing is they're adding the $100, which is a stock, to $5 per year, which is the flow. They're thinking that's what has to be paid back. You've only given the capacity for 100 you want 105 back, therefore the debt must grow over time. That's the thinking we're making. It's erroneous because that stock of dollars generates a flow of economic activity. If you lend $100, you therefore are injecting $100 as a stock into an economy, but that money is then used to, let's say you lend it to a firm. The firm then uses that money to hire workers. It then pays wages to those people, which are dollars per unit of time, dollars per week. The workers then shop dollars per week. The bank is then... And that money will turn over in that economy. So long as your economy produces a physical surplus, meaning that you produce more outputs than you have inputs, and otherwise we'd be starving, so that does happen. That's got its own curly issues, which I can talk about later, but that, that physical surplus means that you have a monetary surplus as well, which will turn into wages and profits. And that $100 over a period of time will turn over in that economy, and in one year uh, it can turn over, say, three times. So the $100 stock generates a flow when you, when you add up the flow of wages plus profits throughout the year would be $300. And you might say roughly that, say, 
200, say, let's say $200 of that goes as workers' wages, 100 goes as profits. As profits, so wages are, are denominated in dollars per year and profits are dollars per year. And out of that 100 stock injection of money, you have $200 worth of wages per year and 100 of profit per year. And what's the interest rate? It's 5%. The firm has to pay $5 of that 100 to the bank to service the debt. Easy. So the, the stock flow confusion people make there makes them think it's difficult. But in fact, it's quite simple to do. Now, I know that this is incredibly hard for people to get their heads around because we're not used to thinking in dynamic terms. So that's where I built this program, uh, which the eventual version is called Minsky. There's a draft version called QED. And what I did in yesterday's talk at this conference was build in front of people's eyes a model using QED saying, well, here's the loan from the bank to the firm. Here's the bank recording that loan. Then the bank charges interest on that. Then the firm pays the interest. Then it hires workers, etc., etc. Built the whole thing and then showed that all three uh, major accounts that I had in the system remained positive, including the firm, which was paying the interest. It's all feasible. So myths abound about the economy from bad simplifying assumptions, as neoclassical economists call them, to try to make what they make things easy, which in fact made it harder, the comparative static analysis, but the myths abound in the public as well because of this simple issue of confusing stocks and flows. I'm happy that you are getting increased recognition and that you're appearing on high-profile programs, like mm. you'll be on the BBC or you recently were on the BBC. BBC Hard Talk, I'm being interviewed by them next Thursday. Next Thursday. Um, when you are on a show like that and mm. say you've got five or eight minutes total, yeah. What are you trying to get across in that little... Oh, well, I really am at the, at the uh, behest of the interviewer in terms of what the questions are. Um, again, I've normally got to find some way either to explain why conventional economic theory is totally misleading or to give some sort of explanation about why we're in a crisis now that makes sense to people. And I think I've normally been successful in doing that. Occasionally I'll, I'll uh, get an aggressive interviewer who might be criticising me, for example, by saying I'm in favour of the government running deficits right now to say, well, shouldn't the government live within its means, blah, blah, blah. And then I get caught in that particular mindset and it can often be very, very hard to break through it. But, you know, generally speaking, at the mercy of the interviewer and uh, I do my best in the jousting. <laughs> well, I am an interviewer who just genuinely wants to understand yeah. what it is you have to say. I also have the advantage of having been at a conference where you've presented multiple times, mm. and I've got to hear not only your presentations, but I've got to hear other members of the audience ask for clarification on certain points. Yeah. Uh, what sense are you getting in terms of where people are hungry for more information and what it is, what adjustment they could make to their own thinking to be more receptive to what it is you're saying? Well, I think people uh, didn't even think about these issues before the subprime crash because there was certainly a minority of people who were concerned about the nature of society, people with ethical judgments on it, or critical of, uh, like Peter Schiff was critical of the uh, Federal Reserve from an Austrian economic point of view and so on. But the masses of society really were just having a great old time playing flip that house. Mm -hmm. you know? uh, when flip that house become the house falls on top of you and crushes you with a mortgage and you're out of work and unemployment's going through the roof and people saying, what on earth happened? Because in some ways, people found themselves in the centre of a bomb site. They didn't even know they were in a war. So now I'm finding people saying, what happened? Trying to get an explanation. And 
there's often a danger, and this was said by somebody in the session a moment ago, of trying to say who's to blame and look for a scapegoat, a critic. And that can be, you can attack the bankers as personalities, you can attack the politicians as being bad decision makers or corrupt. Um, some of that is true, no doubt about it. Plenty of fraud occurred in the banking sector, plenty of, of, of uh, congressmen are like the type that the Wiley cartoon satirises beautifully. Uh, the world's worst superhero. Um, but it's actually systemic stuff we need to understand. And so I believe that I've got a large part of the answer. They're not the entire answer, but a large part of the answer. But it requires people to actually sit back and say, what are the actual dynamics of the system here? How do they occur? And really think until they say, I think I've got an idea now on the processes, the dynamic processes that explain how a system behaves and that's why it got into that problem and therefore we need to with that wisdom we can do something about getting out of this crisis now not without pain but we all can also look at redesigning society in future to prevent something as extreme as what we're going through now but it requires a willingness to think in systemic terms and by that I mean something like what George Soros calls thinking about reflexivity because the big error that people have in um, how they try to think about society, they use very, very simple direct analogies. So a, ha- a household should balance its budget, therefore a government should, for example. Um, or you shouldn't print money that will cause inflation, etc., etc. Um, or the borrowers shouldn't have taken on that debt. It was their, their, bad, their bad mistake. Uh, bad people should suffer for it. That sort of thinking has a very direct cause-effect relationship. But we live in such a complex society that there are numerous feedback effects. That what you do has an effect on unit A, which affects unit B, which affects unit C, which comes back to unit A again, and does something totally unpredictable, if you think it's just in a linear way. So this thinking systemically about society is essential. And that's, you know, it's said Soros's defense of reflexivity is fundamentally what I'm modelling in my programs. Uh, equally the limits to growth group, um, who are falsely attacked over the value of their model. Their model was about modelling feedback effects. So we have to be able to think systemically, and that's difficult. It's not easy for human beings to do that. Uh, so but they have to be willing to say, as difficult as it is, if I really do want to understand and not just lash out, then I've got to be able to think systemically and I've got to teach myself how to do that. And that might be painful, but it's nowhere near as painful as the situation we find ourselves in from allowing non-systemic thinking to dominate society in the first place. I've just come from the uh, Association for the Study of Peak Oil and Gas Meeting in Washington, D.C. Oh, yeah. Dennis Meadows was there. Who was, was he? Yes. Oh, wow. And I'm, I'm told that he is creating a board game to help try to explain uh, systemic thinking. Good, yeah. good, yeah. Oh, the Dennis's uh, work is uh, fantastic work. I mean, it was Forrester, Dennis and Dana Meadows, uh, Rutgers from Norway, who put that work together. And they really thought when they did the... And I've interviewed Rutgers about this for a Macmillan Encyclopedia entry. Uh, he really, they really did think that, that economists and social thinkers would latch onto the systemic way of thinking that they put together in Limits to Growth. And they were both stunned by the success of the book in terms of sales, but shocked by the reaction of economists who just basically drilled into them, ignored them, attacked them, uh, derided them, gave bullshit, pardon the French, but bullshit ideas about what the modelling was based on uh, uh, claimed errors where there weren't errors, 
exaggerated the drawbacks of some of the aggregation they had to do at the simple stage of modelling back at that stage and basically disparaged it. And, and I get people telling me that limits to growth was wrong about this, that and the other. Uh, there's, there's a colleague of mine in Australia, Graham Turner, is working with an extremely detailed database, historical database, of actual resource use in actual industries uh, on the, around the globe. It's called the uh, Stocks and Flow Framework. Brilliant uh, database designed actually by Canadian programmers, a program called What If. But he, he therefore can actually look at what's actually happening in aggregate stocks of commodities, raw materials, resources, and so on, and the flows coming out of them, how we're using them, and extrapolate forward and say what's going to happen if we keep on doing this, but also look at the limits to growth, then find a way to match from their aggregated concept of resources, pollution, population, and so on, to actual data, and then say how close were those predictions back in 1972 to where we find ourselves in 2010, and the answer is too damn close for comfort. So the projections of that model are still very accurate. And again, people said, oh, they said there'd be a population uh, crash by now or um, uh, pollution explosions. They did not. They they deliberately chose a very arbitrarily defined time unit between 1900 and 2100, ran their simulations of the aggregates of pollution, population, uh, resources, um, pollution sinks, a disease and so on, over that generally described two-century period. And eyeballing it, their peak period of danger came in between 2030 and 2050. And only by 2050, they, in, in what they call the standard run, are they normally showing decline. Okay, So we're still some period from where they see as reaching as a, a critical turning point. Uh, so all this work attacking limits to growth is, is, is an abuse of intellect and... You know, I, I really regard um, Meadows and Rutgers and, and Forrester as being some of the most important thinkers we've ever had in humanity. So I'm, I'm delighted to hear he's still alive and kicking and doing some worthwhile work there. I have to say he seems somewhat defeated and grumpy. I can understand that. I mean, he tried so hard and with such good uh, intentions and uh, did such brilliant work. And to get it derided in the way it was is quite... You know, disgusting. And I mean, I'm a pretty pugnacious little bastard. Uh, I can, I, I knew in some ways that I wouldn't have any chance of having impact until the crisis hit. So in some ways, I prepared for this by writing Debunking Economics back in 2000, because I thought there had to be something coming on a grand scale at some point. And being critical at that point was good timing. And that's why I've come up with a second edition now as well. But you can't change people's minds unless a real crisis comes along. So I don't think there was any, any, any real chance of getting humanity to say, oh dear, according to these model projections, we're going to have a crisis in 2050. We've got to change our behaviour now so we don't have the crisis. Humanity's never done that. What it's always done is uh, people will be committed to a particular unsustainable trend. They don't know it's unsustainable, but they're committed to it. So those Easter Islanders out there deciding they want to build those what do they call those, the mo- mojos or the, the statues, I've forgotten the title, chopping down the trees to roll them, you know, uh, and, the, and then having a whole religions built around it and not really caring the fact that there was less and less trees until the stage we've got a completely denuded island. And Jared Diamond does a brilliant job of describing that particular process in Collapse, but he's saying, what did the Easter Islander think of chopped down the last tree? You know, So 
and then society totally changed in nature. It had to. You couldn't move the mowers anymore because there were no trees to move them with. Um, What's they, more, they built their seagoing canoes out of those trees. Yeah, and, and they, they couldn't see go anymore. Upon, yeah. They so, depended on trade and they depended upon fishing. Yeah. And yeah, so... So it was you know, the weirdest instance of humans pushing an unsustainable trend until a collapse when it should have been obvious at some point we have to stop doing this and something about the momentum of society meant they kept on doing it. We're doing that on a global scale. And I'm just... I'm enough of a pessimist about human nature to think we only realise we're on an unsustainable trend after it's proven itself to be unsustainable. And that's what happened with the debt bubble. I, I came up making my warnings in 2000 and, 2006. I began in December 2005. I knew I wouldn't be taken seriously. But I knew unless I got enough noise out there from myself um, saying this is going to happen, then I wouldn't be taken any notice of after it happened. So... You, and fortunately, there were enough journalists out there. I'm not writing off the whole human species, obviously. <laughs> enough, like, like yourself and, and many other good journalists in mainstream media as well as in alternative media, who themselves could feel something was wrong and they wanted me and I uh, to, to contribute and put the point of view forward. And, of course, there's a story in it too. So I got plenty of exposure. So when the crisis actually hit, people could look back and say, oh, yeah, this guy was warning. Maybe we should take attention to what he's saying. And, of course, Meadows unfortunately, will be dead by the time the verse that he's predicted occurs. And I think in retrospect we'll look back and say, why didn't we take more notice of them back in 1972 and 2004? But as you point out, Limits to Growth sold gangbusters. It sold gangbusters, but it didn't... People did pay attention, just not people in a position to influence that's, politics. That's, that's true. Lots of people did. I mean, and, and, um, I mean, the software they developed has become the basis of engineering. You know, it's become professionally used. Very the actual modelling idea of flowchart software that simulates a dynamic process that's become pervasive in technical areas. But in terms of affecting the decision makers and so on, it got blocked out completely. And guess who are the culprits? Neoclassical economists. That's one reason that I'm doing the battle I'm doing because I, and it's, in that sense, I see myself as part of the Meadows philosophy because I'm trying to bring exactly those same techniques into economics. So we think about it in, in that sense. If that had been part of economics at the time, and Meadows and Co. were trying to make it part of economics, then we may have listened more to them back then. They may have influenced the policymakers more. We could have actually thought systemically about society before a systemic collapse. Now it's likely to happen is we'll think systemically about society after a systemic collapse, and God knows what's going to happen when the collapse occurs.
across the rooftops Searching for the ship that brings her sailor home Keeps my promises inside her pocket In a locket Bought it for her from a gypsy girl in Rome Listening to the Sea Realm Podcast. I'm your host, KMO, and I'm speaking with Professor Steve Keen about economics and a seemingly systemic human inability to think rationally about the future. Good choice of word there. <laughs> Before the break, you mentioned um, the habit of blaming the borrower and the, the current mm. talk about what caused our problem. And I have uh, I've heard people suggest, and I've passed along the suggestion of a debt jubilee of some kind. Yep. And a frequent response to that is, well, a debt jubilee is a complete moral hazard because people are just going to go out and do it all over again because they think that you know, there are no consequences to their bad decision-making. And we really need to hold people's feet to the fire so that they will be responsible in the future. But when they say people, they mean people with very little capital, people with very little power, people who are trusting what they are told from people who seemingly are more educated and more intelligent about money matters. Mm. And as Nicole pointed out the other night, we've had a debt jubilee, but it was only for the financial cast. It was not for <laughs> everyone else. Yeah. And so I have so very little patience for this moral hazard argument. I wonder if you would I comment exact, on that. Exactly the same. The moral hazard applies to the lenders, not to the borrowers. And fundamentally, the borrowers... We, 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 one of the things I was talking about in the group a moment ago is how money fundamentally is evolved out of and is a manifestation of social trust. And in this case, we end up trusting the bankers. We trust that their double-entry bookkeeping um, is accurate, and therefore that's why we buy and sell by transferring money from bank accounts. Uh, but we also trust them as professionals about money. And if they come along and say, look, you can afford that much debt, or you, you know, don't worry, if you borrow that, I know it's a bit beyond what you can afford to pay now, but you know, we know house prices are rising, so hang on for 18 months and flip it, and you'll make a nice large amount of money, and then you can be part of the great American dream. We trust them. Now, and they, of course, you know, on one side of the bargaining power, you have uh, CEOs paying themselves enormous salaries, dressing very fancily, 
the Labor Salon likes to point out they always wear ties, uh, but they're very expensive ties. PhDs in the back room developing all the products, lawyers everywhere. And on the other side, you've got um, you know, mum and dad with a couple of kids uh, going to be persuaded by a financial advisor that this is a good idea, etc., etc. I mean, the, the social and psychological and intellectual power is all on the hand of the lender, not the borrower. So the moral, in terms of where the moral uh, repugnance comes from, is the lenders getting caught up in this uh, abuse of trust in the very first instance. And then to turn that around and then say we shouldn't have a jubilee because that would be moral hazard from the borrowers, give me a break. That is outrageous. The, the true moral hazard comes from the behaviour of the lenders and then we have to constrain. And in that sense, what a jubilee would do is pain the lenders so much that they would be at least scarred for some time from ever behaving so irresponsibly as lenders again. That's the real worry. And, of course, borrowers can't go out and do it all again anyway in that scenario because they've got to get the loan from somebody else. The lender has to agree to it. Now, if there was a jubilee writing off the debt, the lenders would be bloody careful in future about who they lent to. And if you wanted to be an irresponsible borrower, good luck you wouldn't get a loan. So, again, that logic is half-baked. And a, a jubilee, in a, in a sense, in some fundamental sense, is necessary because it's the weight of debt and the effect of people reducing their debt that's reducing aggregate demand and causing the slump in the economy all the way through. So you have to have some form of jubilee. Now, it doesn't have to take the form that jubilees used to take in ancient societies, uh, David Graeber has done some great work on that. I'd suggest you, I'd love you to have an interview with David Graeber actually one day about his work on debt the first 5,000 years. But um, the original Jubilees, and Michael Hudson as well, of course, um, the original Jubilees involved normally a ritual execution of a lender. <laughs> Don't quite suggest that this time round. Um, nor do you necessarily have to write the debt off. But you could do something with fiat money that effectively gave people the potential to cancel the debt by you know, giving large amounts of money to everybody and saying, if you're in debt, you must use this money to pay your debt down. So you don't actually have to write the debt off. You simply make it possible for the lender to turn that debt into a cash asset for the, for the lender. The, the, the loans go down, the cash assets go up. You reduce the debt burden on society in that process. You'd have to make many other changes to society as well. So a jubilee in some sense is necessary but it will be a very, very complicated thing to work out how to do it because we're in an extremely complicated situation. And we're in that situation because the banks not just lent, they also sold the loans, sold the securitisation process. They've scrambled debt claims on society throughout society, whereas in the 1930s, the debt claims on society were largely owned by the banks. So it's much more complicated now to get out of the debt trap we're in than it was even in the 1930s. And a lot more complicated to uh, execute the moneylender. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you are no fan of religion, I take it. No. And I have heard from many an evangelical atheist that, um, a very simplified story, the Dark Ages were a time of untold misery and it was because the church ruled mm. and that the Enlightenment came when the power of religion was broken and people could think rationally. Mm. Um, but I've also read other accounts, particularly in Life, Inc. by Douglas Rushkoff, about how in what we call the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages, there was a lot of um, 
decentralized economic activity and the fact that there was a lot of local currency mm. and then there was the coin of the realm of the centralized currency, but that was usually only used for uh, long-distance trade, yeah. that local trade was handled with local currency. And that while people who are antagonistic to religion like to call that the Dark Ages, it was also the age of cathedrals because people in their local communities had such surpluses that they could build enormous cathedrals in order to attract tourists to their regions. <laughs> and that uh, the, what we now call the Renaissance was really the rise of the limited liability corporation where monarchs got into bed with the rising mercantile class and granted monopolies in order to get a cut of the action. Mm-hmm. And that doing that... Um, in, in doing that, part of the process was to destroy the local currencies and enforce the use of the coin of the realm for all transactions, yeah. and thereby centralizing the authority over all transactions. Uh, I wonder if you can say more about the Dark Ages? Or... Look, I, I couldn't say that better myself. Okay. Uh, I, I am not an, ex- I'm not an anthropologist or a historian or an archaeologist, but having read a work by David Graeber and Hudson and Cornelia Wunsch and so on, I'm aware of, of that research, and my perspective on the Dark Ages has been altered by that. And what you've said is, a, I, think, I wouldn't want to try to improve on that summary of what it was like. If you have to look at what the, the impact of the Renaissance was in a beneficial sense, because you know the Dark Ages, bad Renaissance, good type vision, you've certainly done a perfect job of saying that was stylized nonsense when we look history properly. But what came out of, after Renaissance was ultimately the innovation and the scientific revolutions of that period. So there's something about that break from religion that was, was vital, and that coincided with the Renaissance, whether it was you know, an accident of time or caused by, I, I really can't say. But that, that's where the, the major transformation of society, which is benefit, has come from. But certainly the Dark Ages got a bad rap, a, a wrongly bad rap. Now, you've mentioned repeatedly a trio of names. One of them is Michael Hudson. I've heard yep. him interviewed many times on a Guns and Butter radio show. Oh, yeah. I think he's in Kansas City, Missouri? Uh, no, he no? Is, he's, he's a visiting professor there, but he's actually based in New York. Okay. This is one of the few times we're going through New York. I won't be seeing Michael. I'm too much of a bloody rush. And another of the, the trio was David Graeber. Who's the third? Cornelio Wunsch is an anthropologist and... Oh, actually, <laughs> I should probably laugh. I'd probably dismiss it probably, but archaeologist who specialises in, in Mesopotamia and translates cuneiform tablets and speaks whatever the language is called, uh, one of the few people in the world who can speak it. And he's therefore doing the detailed historical research. He worked with Michael Hudson uh, on looking at what ancient money systems were like. So, again, I said that's not my specialty, but one of the things I try to do when I need to know something about an area is work out people whose knowledge is deep and whose understanding I trust. And... Those are three people in that area whose knowledge I do respect. Well, those are three people who I will be looking to interview in the future then. (laughs) (laughs) Professor Steve Keen, thank you very much for appearing on the Sea Realm Podcast. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Kamo. You're listening to the Sea Realm Podcast with your host, KMO. Question has many parts to it, but they all revolve around building resilience in local communities. Okay. So what should individuals be doing with their savings and with their mortgages in order to put themselves in a good position? And what can communities do to incentivize and help people make the right decisions in terms of building local resilience? Mm. Uh, Well, in terms of individuals, enduring a debt deleveraging, the best thing to be is in cash. Okay. Um, That... Then well, the advantage individually is you don't have debt to service, and and secondly, if you 
see an asset which somebody's being forced to sell for distress reasons, you can buy it cheaply. Okay, so that's in terms of personal gain, that's that's being out of debt in cash. Okay. In terms of local communities, the trouble about that particular individual strategy, that's part of what actually causes the crisis because when you liquidate, you help drive asset prices down. That itself triggers others to have to sell. And if you have liquidation going on all the time, then you're reducing the money supply in circulation, not actually existing, but it's the money's going into... When you pay your debt off, you put the money back into the bank and it goes out of active circulation. So it reduces the economic activity in society which makes things worse. So it's a positive strategy for the individual, a dangerous one for the collective. Um, If you're looking at building local resilience, then certainly during a crisis like we're in now, local currencies make a lot of sense because uh, there's there's a good role for debt-based money when that debt-based money is financing new investment innovation. That's the genuine source of increased capacity to innovate comes from rising debt. That's actually the, when debt's used properly, that's a positive role for it. But the other role of money, of course, is to maintain economic activity by circulation in a community. And if you have a, a debt crisis like we're in now, both the innovation role disappears and the circulation role as well. So when a local currency is formed, what you've then got is a form of circulation that can supplant the, the collapse in the, in the credit-based system. So even though I'm not a great... Um, I don't believe you can have local currencies completely supplanting um, normal currency uh, because you'd never fund, like, a new semiconductor plant that way. Or you'd never fund a strip to the moon that way, OK? Private or public. But you certainly can maintain bread-making that way in the normal activity of a community. So local currencies make a lot of sense. Um, at an overall social level, you're in a debt crisis caused by the finance sector convincing you that being in debt's a good thing. It isn't really individual fault for taking on too much debt. It's the finance sector convincing us that being in debt's a good idea. And economic theory plays a huge role in that. So I'd see two things as being very useful <coughs> to do at a social level. One is to organise for something, what I would call a modern jubilee, abolishing the debt. Now... That's a social organisation thing. Now, as to how you abolish it, there's two ways to go about abolishing debt. One is to actually write it off and say 80% shouldn't have been lent, we're writing off 80% of the debt, and force the banks through a restructuring, reorganisation. It would be quite a bloody process. The other is, and, and I have, this is totally hypothetical, I haven't worked this out, but it's just a, the other approach to doing it, is to give everybody a million dollars, inverted commas, large amount of money, and say, if you're in debt, you have to pay your debt down using $100 million. Okay? If you're not in debt, you can hang on to it. But if you have debt, you must reduce it. Now, what that would mean is the banks don't lose any assets because what goes down in loans goes up in their reserves. So the bank's um, solvency wouldn't necessarily be destroyed. What would happen is the liquidity would drop drastically because they rely upon large amounts of debt to get their revenue. So if you suddenly give them money rather than debt, their cash flows will decline dramatically. So you still have a challenge to your banking sector. But that is a fairer, potentially less damaging way to do a modern jubilee than the old way. The old way of doing a modern jubilee used to be behead the money lender. 
and free the slaves. Okay? Um, we can't quite do that anymore, as tempting as it might be for some of the moneylenders. Um, so that, that, that at a social level, I'd suggest doing something like that. And I had a second idea, and I think I've lost it by being too funny. Uh, I can't remember. I can't bring up the last bloody comment drag. Um, I should think you guys are going to take notes. I should take notes. Um, Two ways to do the Jubilee. Uh, the, the Jubilee, definitely. Um, yeah, occupy economics departments. Oh, okay. Oh. okay. Um, economists really caused this crisis. That's, you know, it's incredible how human thought can be its own worst enemy. The worst enemy human thoughts, thoughts ever had would probably be religion, and the second is ideology, and the third is economics. And economic money managers combine the worst traits of the other two at the same time. So we need a realistic approach to economics. And this doesn't mean um, getting economics departments to talk about how society should be organised, because that's fundamentally where they went wrong. They've always seen themselves as reformists. Economists actually believe they're reforming the system to make it better for everybody. Believe it or not, neoclassical economists would be, some of them, amongst the most altruistic individuals I've ever met. They genuinely believe they're doing good. But I have a wonderful analogy from my, my youth. I've repeated in the second edition of the book. had a fabulous <coughs> religion teacher who used to let us run discussions by sitting at the back of the room. One of us would chair it. He'd sit at the back and let us talk. Fantastic guy. Uh, and one time we were doing this, and one of the, we were discussing some politician, being critical of him, and somebody piped up and said, well, at least he's sincere. And everybody, yeah, everybody else went, oh, yeah, that's fair enough, he's sincere. Well, the teacher piped up from the back of the room, and he said, don't overrate sincerity. The most dangerous person you'll meet in your life is the maniac chasing you down the road, sincerely trying to chop your head off. <laughs> and he's right, sincerity is dangerous. So they sincerely believe they're doing good. They believe they've got a vision of a perfect society, and they're trying to reform us to get to this perfect society. And that's where all the deregulation and stuff has come from. So you don't want people who are trying to make a perfect society. You want people who are trying to describe the system we're in. So you want to get an empirical, realistic economic, even if you don't like the system it describes. Okay? So we need a take on the economics departments because they won't reform themselves. And that's the one of the major reasons I wrote the book is to explain why the public should take on the economics departments. But I know left to their own devices, they'll rebuild their vision of a perfect society and get back to being zealots trying to prom promulgate that belief through the rest of society, including doing the same catastrophic thing they've done this time around. So those two things. We have a, a minute or so left. What are you doing personally, and how does that contribute to building resilience in your own local community? Mm. Oh, personally, I'm, <laughs> my life is devoted to what I'm doing in this campaign. And that's really been the last 40 years. I haven't worried about my own financial situation. My, uh, my ex-wife, at the time that I first realised this was going to happen, asked her, what's our personal situation going to be? And I said, we're going to be in Easy Street. Because if I'm right about this and the crisis comes along, then as one of the people who called it, if I'm successful in communicating it, I won't have to worry about money for the rest of my life. And that's fundamentally true. So my now fiancé is still a bit annoyed about the fact that I don't particularly worry about money. But on that front, I think I'm correct. So my in-person situation is quite weird, and I wouldn't recommend it to anybody else. Well, thank you Thank you very okay, much. Okay, thank you. All right. <laughs> On the Sea Realm podcast, a mind that is stretched by a new experience 
can never go back, never go back never to its go old back. dimensions. That was Professor Steve Keen. And the music that you heard in this week's episode was from Fernando Tarango. Fernando has a new album out. Well, maybe it's not that new. And as far as I can tell, the album is just called Digital Album. But it's got 12 really excellent songs on it, many of which you've heard on this podcast in weeks past. And you can download that album and name your price for it. I won't say how much I paid. It was way too little for the quality of the music. I will include a link to the page where you can download that album in the show notes for this week's episode, which you can find on my blog, kmo.livejournal.com, or on the Sea Realm website. That is c-realm.com. And if you want to send me some feedback, you can leave a comment there on the website, you can leave a comment at the Friends of the Sea Realm group on Facebook, or you can send me email. My email address is kmo at crealm.com. Now, normally, at the beginning of the episode, I thank the sponsors of this week's episode, but I received no new donations this week. Although I would like to thank Hans, who bought Olga and me dinner, at a restaurant and pub whose menu is entirely inspired by songs by the band Ween. Also, I'd like to thank Gary and Cindy. Gary and Cindy offered their home as a place for me and Albert and Olga to stay while we attended the ASPO conference in Washington, D.C., and also, I'd like to thank Joe and Suzanne, who offered their home in rural Ohio. And Suzanne made a lovely dinner for us last night, and she would have fed us an excellent breakfast if we were the breakfast-eating types. Most of all, I would like to thank Aaron Weissman. Aaron not only arranged the interview with Steve Keen, but really he put together the whole conference from which I have just returned. That is the local futures conference called Vision, Action, and Leadership. And he will be hosting that conference again in the spring. So I will say more about that as it approaches. Well, I have a lot of material to choose from for next week's show. I have no idea what I'm going to use, but I hope that you will join me. And until that time, I hope that you will stay well. <laughs> <laughs>